Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I have a stat, Waddy Mark. Terrific. Sent in by a listener, Daniel Moss. Thanks for this, Daniel. And I've got six titles in front of me. Um, three of them are albums by Iron Maiden. The other three are novels by Jeffrey Archer. Okay, are you ready? All right. Here we go. Prodigal Son, Iron Maiden or Jeffrey Archer? Yep. Are you going to tell me? Oh, I see. Okay, we're doing it all the way through. Okay, Prodigal Son. Do you know, I, it's terrible. I, I really genuinely, you picked the right person. I'm not very good at Iron Maiden albums, and I haven't read anything by Jeffrey Archer. Oh, That's Iron, awful, isn't it? That's Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. It's Iron Maiden, it must be. Over yeah. My Dead Body. Iron Maiden or Jeffrey Archer? That's Jeffrey Archer. The clock is ticking in this roller coaster ride of a thriller. In London, the Metropolitan Police set up a new unsolved murders unit, a cold case squad to catch the criminals nobody else can, etc., etc., etc. What a page turner. The Sins of the Father, Iron Maiden or Geoffrey Archer? Iron Maiden. Only days before Britain declares war on <laughs> Germany. Very <laughs> choice. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, very good. Okay. Two minutes to midnight. Iron Maiden or Jeffrey Archer? It's going to have to be Iron Maiden. It is Iron Maiden. <laughs> been underrepresented. It's Iron Maiden as yeah. you go. House of Glory, Iron Maiden or Jeffrey Archer? Iron Maiden. Inspired by the ah! two <laughs> <laughs> oh, Very good. And finally, uh, Ken pulled on his Macintosh, stuck a gun in his up in his inside <laughs> pocket, and set out towards the cabaret. Absolutely. Oh no, no. And finally, seventh son of a seventh son is that Iron Maiden or is that Jeffrey Archer? Well, that surely is it, Iron Maiden. Now it is Iron Maiden. I think I've actually Iron heard Maiden. of that one. Yeah, you probably have. So, thanks very much, Daniel Moss, for those. And very good uh, work, Daniel. If, if anybody else has got uh, you know any ideas for Stack Woody games. I should explain the derivation of Stack Woody game. Anybody who's coming to this later, 
Uh, we used to just make jokes about a group called Stackwaddy who must, must made two albums on John Peel's Dandelion label in the late one of 60s. Which, which was called Bugger Off. One of them was called Bugger Off. And we used to just occasionally invoke their name just as a kind of ludicrous <laughs> reminder of the <laughs> of the halcyon days of loon pants and, and uh, you know, scoop-necked, bell-sleeved T-shirts from Kensington Market and probably clogs and so forth. It's a bit like saying the word Mornington Crescent, wasn't it? It, it is. It's very similar. laughter in itself. Actually. Absolutely. You just, just a, fall about the it's, thought it's, of just stack It's Mornington Crescent with patchouli oil, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's a punctuation mark in a, in, a, in, a, in a sentence, isn't it? It's kind of right. That's gone far enough. Stack And anyway, people got in touch and said, are you making this up? And we said, no, we're not making this up. The thing about rock and roll you can't make things up because you know real things are even more ludicrous so hence the stack what game where we just play with those uh play with those ideas i think they probably call them tropes nowadays wouldn't they the youngsters the, on the internet so mark had jabs yesterday I had my jabs uh you know the uh the the anti-flu and the covid top up and so forth. i've got mine tomorrow did, are you, you gonna got, did you deliver the, the the usual tony hancock lines i mean I, <laughs> I didn't really, but they're always going, <laughs> they're going round my head, you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, I find it's nearly an armful. Uh, yeah, yeah, bang it in, I'm getting dizzy. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've had a syringe full of everything that's going in my time, you know. Have you given blood before? Given? No. Spilt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just started on this on Twitter yesterday, and, and you know, loads of people chimed in. And, uh, you know, I don't know anything as well as I know the script for the blood donor, I could pretty much recite, I'm not exaggerating, I could pretty much recite the whole thing, you know. Well, I can remember during the Live Aid broadcast oh, when Steve Blacknell, our, our fellow co-presenter, was on Concord escorting Phil Collins, I think, across to Philadelphia to play with Led Zeppelin. And you had a quick exchange about uh, blood. It wasn't the it wasn't the uh, the blood donor in that case. Steve also is a big Hancock fan, and uh, we were connected via the flight deck of Concord. So this is nineteen. When is this? Nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty six was it? Yeah, eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah. Um, hmm. And um, and I think when he got through to me, I don't think we realised we were broadcasting. But the first thing he said was, can you send a tray of bread pudding to Koala Lumpur? <laughs> or are either, either that or is, it is our not raining in Tokyo. Whatever. Anybody who knows those Hancock things will, you know. I'm wondering what percentage of the people listening would have got that. Well, in it those, doesn't matter. In those days, quite a few. Quite a lot. But, those but let me tell you now, 40 years later, Try, try to get a, a smile out of a pharmacist by referring to something that Joe, Tony Hancock said to June Whitfield in 1958. It's pretty, pretty pointless. That's barren really. soil, isn't it? But, it? but it is. I can't think of any other jokes that have kind of lasted as long as the jokes in uh, in The Blood Donor. You know what I mean? I don't think you hear stuff from The Goons that's lasted as long as that. Because no, not at all. There's something about Hancock Goon sounds too surreal, doesn't make any sense at all, whereas Hancock's just it's real conversational. Do you know what I think it is also? I think if you if you know it well enough and it goes through your head enough, it sounds to me like a lost section of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now just try that, do you know what I mean? 
Secretary of the Dance Team and the Outings Committee. We're going to Margate this year, if any of you nurses fancy it. you know. Or they can just pick absolutely any line from their coughs and sneezes, spread diseases. Coughs and sneezes, spread diseases, that's right. Which was huge in the, and the Sellers movie. Yeah. No, it was, it was that National Health poster that used to be on the... Um, was on the wall of every doctor's surgery. So while Hancock sat in the waiting room, he just, um, you know, he just read those things to keep himself amused because of a new newspapers and so forth. And, of course, the greatest line in the blood donor, and I'll just leave you with this and then we'll move on to something else, cool. is when he's recovering, <laughs> having his team biscuits afterwards, <laughs> recovering to Hugh Lloyd's in the next Which he year. used to have in those days. Which he did. After that, a jab, that was, digestive, a couple no, of well, that, tea. If you're a blood donor, if you're a blood donor, that, seriously, people did it to get the tea and the biscuit. That's how. But that's tough. a net loss. You, that's how lose. hard life was. Yeah, but you're, you're down a pint of blood, which is going to take you months to, <laughs> Regenerate. to replenish. <laughs> that's right. All for a cup of tea. And anyway, Hancock just does riffing on his half baked medical knowledge, which, you know. But Hugh, Hugh Lloyd is, you know, easily impressed and he goes, Are you a doctor then? And Hancock goes, it, No, I couldn't be bothered or something. No, I never bothered. Never bothered. That's <laughs> right. I could have been. No, I never bothered. It's still my fact. When anybody says anything about doctors, you know, I go, yeah, I could have been a doctor. But like, no, I never bothered. <laughs> um, so we were talking about Live Aid just then, weren't we? And Live Aid, uh, the musical. It, yes. The Live Aid musical. I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm fascinated by this. It's opening, isn't it? The Old Vic in, in January. I think tickets are about to be on sale. They're on sale already, I, I think. I, do you know, I'm sorry. I think it's a good idea. It's so, a genuinely good. So idea. This is John O'Farrell, isn't it? The writer yeah. who's, um, he's, he's spinning an image. Have I got news for you? He's That's recently right. adapted Madame Doubtfire or Mrs. Madame Doubtfire, Doubtfire. We, whichever we call it, into a kind of musical in the West End. Yeah. And uh, no, I think it is a very good idea, but we're assured that there's going to be nobody dressed up as Freddie Mercury or, or any of the other uh, turns. But the music but, will feature. Apparently. Will there be somebody dressed up as you? Because <laughs> well, I think that, the most well, famous moment in, moment in Live Aid, the most famous moment in Live Aid is not really anything that particularly happened in the middle of a musical number. It's uh, Give Me the Fucking Money, which he never said, of course. Which he never said. said. Was, Fuck the address, because I <laughs> yeah. remember we were there. And, uh, but that's the most famous moment in the entire movie. Well, and, we sh- uh, you're we immortalised in the Queen film, so I'm sure you'll be. I'm sure you'll be there in the musical. You may even have a song and dance number, David. A bit of choreography. <laughs> come tapping on from stage left. You, you see, know. will they have to come and ask my permission, Mark? Because I didn't sign away the rights to the use of my, you know, light, lightness of my identity. You know, because generally speaking, nowadays people are really scrupulous about that kind of thing because they're yeah. terrified that somebody's going to you know, come back to haunt them with a lawsuit, uh, uh, you know, because they didn't uh, didn't sign off you on it. You might get a spin-off musical all of your own. <laughs> yeah. But you see, given our joint history, I think my prediction is what will happen is you will be rung up and asked for permission <laughs> for me. It'll be somebody who thinks... It was Mark Allen that Which was Which guy was that. it? I don't really matter. One it of doesn't two. matter. One yeah, of we'll either of them do. No one, no one knows the difference. Yeah, yeah. I think no, it's a great idea. It's a problem. It, also, the, I love the idea there's a love story. Of course, it's got to be a love story. It's a musical. So presumably a couple who meet at Live Aid go on to marry, and I'm sure that probably happened in real life. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. two members of bands. I don't know. 
They something. say it's based on, uh, you know, it's based on a real life meeting of some kind. Oh, right. But it's going to have loads of the songs. So they must have cleared the songs. Well, that's the thing. They, they actually said there's going to be the Who, U2, Queen, Police, yeah. John Paul. I mean, this is Paul McCartney. I mean, that's phenomenal. I mean, the, the budget that must have gone on that, I'm presuming there's a charity donation involved. Well, yeah, I'd say 10% of the so revenues go right, to yeah. the, the, the um, Band Aid Trust. Well, I have to say, I think Bob Geldof is one of those people who's genuinely funny. Everything he says is genuinely witty, I think. He was asked about it. He said, um, uh, who was going to play him? He said, let me be completely blunt. It's bad enough being Bob Geldof. It's slightly worse seeing someone else pretending to be you. <laughs> that was true. really good. That's probably true. Yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. So what, what haven't they made musicals about that they could do? It's going to have a happy ending, isn't it? So you couldn't do one about Radio 1, could you? No, I suppose not. God, it's got to be an, I was thinking Smash Hits might make a musical. I don't know, really. It's a good story. Oh, God, story. that's an idea. You know, and you've got lots of little characters, you can fictional characters you can invent, and you've got a fantastic soundtrack. And there's the dramas of, oh, gosh, new romantics. How do we cover this? You know, I don't know. Do you, do you know what I think they should do? I mean, and it's just occurred to me, as you just said that now, they should take advantage of the fact that you've got Claire Gregan, you've got, you got uh, Nick Hayward, you've got the Human League, you've got Boyd George, you've got Mary Wilson. Spans. And the thing yeah. about all these acts is they're all still around. They're all still going. All they're still all still going. going. And, they, and, and, and Howard Jones played a big gig last night. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, they look really good. They do. We've often had this discussion. People from 1982 appear to be really well preserved, don't they? Nick, Nick Hayward actually looks younger than he did. Absolutely. Uh, and even then he looked 14. So it's yeah, absurd. Yeah. And so what they ought to do is a musical featuring the acts. Yeah. The original performers at the London Palladium. That go down really well. Go down it? really well. The story, yeah, the year of smash hits or something in, like that. In related pop culture news, Stevie Nicks, things things you would never have predicted 35 years ago or whatever, number 97. Stevie Nicks on stage just a few days ago at the at Madison Square Garden making an announcement about her Barbie doll. Did you follow mm, that story? I did, I did. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? I think it was I amazing. Up, I looked up to see what who already had a Barbie doll, Okay. This is a stack waddy, really. Actually, here's a few of them. Two of these are two of those. Two of these are invented by me. Oh, Jennifer right. Lopez, Marilyn Monroe, Beyonce, Cher, Cindy Lauper, Elvis and Priscilla, J.K. Rowling, Joan Jett, <laughs> William and Kate, Twiggy, Bowie, Tina Turner, Patti Smith, and P.J. Harvey. Can't be Patti Smith. Sure. No, can't be. <laughs> Uh, Not Patty Smith or PJ. I don't think it's PJ Harvey. Can, no. Are you saying you can have William and Kate? Yeah, William and Kate. There's a Barbie doll. Does, yeah, so William, William's a Ken and Kate. So, yeah, so yeah. does that mean that the royal family have licensed their image to whoever, whoever is the Barbie company? Yeah, That's amazing. It is. I think the whole thing's astonishing. Elvis and Priscilla. But actually, in terms of uh, of of um, of Stevie Nicks, just the stuff she's wearing, her gothic cape. Her, her ribboned tambourine, all the little bits of kit are really She good. lent them, she lent them the original costumes, which she still has, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah, she did, yeah. Uh, so that they could model uh, model it properly. Yeah. But it's interesting in all kinds of ways. It is, as you say, kind of surprising 
you might not have predicted it 40 years ago or whatever. But they, there's David Bowie Barbie dolls, aren't there? Yeah, there are, think, oh, yeah. There's, um, there are, well, they're action men or something. I don't know what they are, but there are figures, yeah, yeah. Because anybody would be kind of flattered, wouldn't it, really? Incredible. And, uh, but it's also part of this thing of, um, of kind of preserving and managing the brand, isn't it? So you, you know, to give Stevie Nicks some kind of purchase on the younger generation. Yeah. It's a really good thing to do, isn't it? it? You know, so one of my granddaughters might well be coming home with a Stevie Nicks doll. But the other thing, the other thing that's really struck me about is 20 years ago, if you're going to do a thing like that, there would be an advertising and publicity campaign. You know, people would seed it with little stories in the Sunday Times. Yeah. Or whatever. There would be interviews on, on breakfast television, or I don't know what. Now, all you need to do is this. Just in the middle of a Stevie Nicks show at Madison Square Garden, as you say, I'd like to introduce you to somebody special. And everybody's saying, oh, Lindsay Buckingham's going to come. Lindsay Buckingham's coming on stage, yeah. And so instead, an image drops down, it's projected on the back of the Stevie Nicks Barbie doll. And the whole place goes wild. And at which point, you can that very night go and buy one. Yeah. $55, $55, and it'll be in your home probably the following day. I know, it's astonishing. You know, you, you don't need retail, you don't need anything like that. And, uh, and everybody there would have tweeted it. Absolutely. and it's so incredible. And so, you know, the kind of, the media, the, the, the mainstream media, as we call it, never breaks these stories anymore. Not at all. It just no. catches up on them. It goes, did you, did you see what happened? Do you, do you see what people are already excited about? We're writing about that. That you know, we're Which not the, creating the lot of most newspaper reporters these days, isn't it? it most is. newspapers are what happened on Twitter yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just are. So yes, uh, Stevie Nicks, the TV Nicks Barbie doll. She says that there will never be the, another Fleetwood Mac reunion. I see. She said that the other day because no Christine McVie. She couldn't do it without her. Soulmate is, I think, the expression she used, which is, you know, probably true. Yeah, probably, probably the right thing to do, actually. To yeah. So, in other news, um, they're going to uh, make smoking illegal for younger <laughs> people. <laughs> how excited would you be if you were fourteen and you told that tobacco was illegal? How, how excited would you be to go out and get some? Very. <laughs> you know, seriously. It really made me think just about the kind of cultural hold of smoking when I was a kid and a teenager. And also the kind of identification, the almost automatic, without thinking, identification of smoking with rock and roll bands. Completely. Just, it's what they did. When they weren't playing, when they weren't playing, let me say, when they weren't playing, they were smoking. It's just simple as that. They did two things. When they, you know, they didn't smoke on stage very much. I mean, that kind of happened in a showy way later on. But basically, they either played or they smoked. And, you know, and occasionally when you saw them in the studio or rehearsing, they did the two things at the same time. And so that was, that was very attractive. 
Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. very attractive. Or they, or they put the cigarette in you the think kind of all those clips of Dylan and the Stones and the Beatles just never without a fag. Absolutely. Press conferences, people, all of them smoking the whole time. I can remember being about, I don't know, 17 or whatever it was when I was in my first uh, terrible groups, you know, and the, the thing you wanted to do, first thing you did was, apart from just setting up your equipment, was light a cigarette and stick it in the machine heads that's behind the, the strings of your, uh, of your guitar stock. Because that's what everybody did, didn't they? It is. Because it was, it was supposed to look... It was supposed to signal the I'm trying to get to the to the basis of what was really attractive about smoking and the reason everybody wanted to do it. So, you know, because what what people do not understand nowadays, I mean obviously people still smoke, some people still smoke. But in those days, it was exceptional not to, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, it was. You you were kind of odd if you didn't, you know. And um, I worked at a kibbutz when I was a kid in Israel. A part of the very small wages you got per week was 20 cigarettes a day. A day? Your wages. Yeah, your wages. A day. Yeah. Horrible, horrible uh, Israeli cigarettes, which are absolutely unpalatable. But you got them free cigarettes. And they were meant to encourage, but I mean, in the war, they were meant to encourage social activity. You know, somebody always had a packet of fags and share them around. Extraordinary. It's, um, you know, reminiscing about the days we used to have smash out planning meetings. And we used to sit in a closed meeting room at um, in Carnaby Street, and there'd be you, there'd be me, there'd be Steve Bush, there'd be Peter Strong, there'd be Zed Zawada, there'd be Ron Sop. And what were we all doing? All smoking. smoking. All the way through. Yeah. All the way through the meeting. How we survived the, okay. those meetings, <laughs> I simply do not know. You know. If I go near anybody who smokes nowadays, even outdoors, I can kind of, kind of feel it on me, you know what I mean? I feel kind of contaminated. That's one of the weird things I'm watching the film Oppenheimer, which uh, in which he smokes throughout the entire movie. There's not a single scene where he's not smoking. So I've forgotten what people looked like when they smoke. You don't see people smoke anymore. You don't, you don't kind of watch them actually doing it, thinking how bizarre, it, now in retrospect, utterly idiotic it seems. Do you remember the? Do you remember the the fags we used to smoke? Number no, six. I do. Number six sovereigns. Sovereigns. Sovereigns were three and six for 20, which I make about 17 pence a pack. Do you know how much a cigarette is now? A Marlboro, a Marlboro now, is, they're 75 pence each. 15 so, bob. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's four, 14 pounds 80 for a packet of 20. So they're now 75 pence each, and then they, they were 17 pence for 20. Isn't that phenomenal? It's incredible, isn't it? They so were so, the much, so, much part, so much part of our kind of culture and our background. I was thinking this morning about being. We used to go. We used to go on treasure hunts. Do you remember that when you yeah. go car treasure hunts? You know, what I mean? before they were kind of banned because the police frowned upon them. Because too many people, too many people belting around the locality, not concentrating on the traffic, because they were pursuing clues. On one occasion, you, you were supposed to come back with a picture of Nottingham Castle, and everybody's thinking picture. How the hell do you get hold of a picture of Nottingham Castle in Yorkshire or wherever you were? Because clever people knew that every packet of players' cigarettes yeah. had a picture of Nottingham Castle. You know what I mean? All those you were just surrounded by those images absolutely all the time, weren't you? Capstan, Secret Senior Service, Woodbines. 
and uh, you know, senior service were untipped, so they were for hard men, were they? Unti- anything without a filter was hardcore. My dad, pure tar. Spoke, my dad smoked uh, player cigarettes plain, and his brother smoked senior service. I don't think there's any difference between the two. It just one was blue, and, and the other I can't remember what colour it was. Um, but they were they were both absolutely. And there was a slight, there was a slight difference in their kind of in the in the kind of snobbishness of the brambles. Chesterfields. Oh my god! What Bob Hope and Bing Crosby used to smoke. Yeah, the American ones were Bowie, all very. Yeah, Bowie smoked Gaulois. I remember that. Freddie Mercury Marlborough. Yeah. John Lennon started on Woodbines. Then it was Gaulois Displur, and then it was Kent and Cool. Uh, Mar- right. You remember the and Dunhills. <laughs> Keith Richards Marlborough. Yes. Just, they're so they're so nostalgic. Just those, just those, those brand names. So, album covers based on the designs of well-known cigarette brands. Oh, a Salty Dog. No, no. Uh, oh, yes, gone. Yeah, be. Salty Dog was that? It was. Service? It was. Yeah, yeah it probably was. Sunny yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. The the first Camel album. Oh yes. Was. Camel cigarettes, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't know if they cleared it, but it was. And um, J.J. Gale had a record, what was it called, Shades, which was based on the Gitane, um, the, the French uh, brand Gitane. Yes. And I've got in front of me, actually, um, a Bob Seeger album from 1972, uh, which is called Smoking O.P.'s. And that's that's kind of pastiche of I think the Lucky Strike, um, Lucky Strike uh, branding. Do you know what you remember? Smoking OPs. You remember what that stood stood for? I don't think I do. Other people's. Other yeah, people's. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Other. I smoke other P- OPs. That's right. And of course, I never buying it. I catch. And, and of course, that reminds you of just how much time you know how much part of a social interactions they were. You know, they were handed round, weren't they? Yeah. All the time. And and I used to, I remember my dad occasionally handing them out to people and they'd go, I'll take that for later. And they'd put it behind their put ear. Put it behind their ear. That's right. <laughs> it's all just utterly bizarre, isn't it? It is extraordinary. When they did the sale, uh, one of the sales of um, Abbey Road paraphernalia and stuff, they... Um, they got quite a significant sum of money for the ashtray that used to be put next to Ringo Starr's drum kit during every Beatles session because obviously he just sat there. He was always in the same place. Very often he was sitting around just killing time, waiting for the rest of them to get to get themselves sorted out. And he would just sit there and smoke and smoke and smoke, you know. And they're all going to this... Uh, this kind of waist high, this pedestal um, ashtray, and uh, and when it was sold, I think he he had to provide an affidavit to say yes, that's the one, <laughs> that's the one that I tipped one million Marlboros. Yes, yeah, so it really is worth seventy nine thousand dollars. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't imagine what anybody does with it. You know, Keith Richards you? once calculated how many cigarettes he smoked in his life. He smoked pretty much from the age of fourteen onwards, and he reckoned it was somewhere in the region of four hundred and fifty thousand cigarettes. It's really <laughs> chilling, isn't it? It is. Imagine it is. how did he survive? But yeah, I can still remember that. You know, just thinking about this, 
this kind of identification with, of smoking with kind of cool and being attractive and looking as if you didn't care. I suppose that was the point, wasn't it, really? Because, you know, we all when we all started to smoke, when we were like 15, 16, you suddenly felt like a big guy, didn't you? Really, oh, very much so. And also the thing is you used cigarettes as part, as gesticulation, yeah, yeah. as part of the way you smoked, and uh, you spoke rather, and to, to make a point, to emphasise things. There's a, the best smoking ever on film, I think, is High Fidelity, John Cusack. Do you remember John Cusack who smokes throughout the entire thing and lights his cigarettes with a Zippo lighter? Oh, really? The way he smokes and the way he, you know, is constantly exhaling smoke for emphasis and stuff, is just, it's just absolutely classic. There are, certain, there are times when I watch, you know, old, old films, you know, black and white films made in the 40s and the early 50s, where there's so much smoking that completely unconsciously I find myself sniffing my clothing. <laughs> Seriously, I yeah. do. I think I've been with Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard for the last hour. I must reek of, yeah. you know, play that a cigarette. That cafe where they meet is just thick with smoke. Absolutely. Well, that's the Lion's Corner House, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Where they meet there. The lady's playing the cello, I think. Yeah. God, what a great film, Brief Encounters. Fantastic. I see it once a year. Never, ever disappointing. Gets Never. sadder, actually. Gets oh, it's sadder. brilliant. So I'll tell you one of the best things about it is the, it's the most brilliant depiction of them rapidly falling in love, the little in-jokes they have, you know, about the cello player. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. And, they, and it's the, and, and the, and the, the woman playing the organ in the Do you know who the cello player was? Go on. Irene Handel. No. Yes. I'm sure it is. It's Irene Handel. The great, the sainted uh, Irene Handel. Anyway, um, it's a marvellous film, marvellous film, and they will never, ever remake it because nobody would believe nowadays that they wouldn't give in to their base urges because that's the whole deal with the film, isn't it? Which they do try to, to be fair, and then are thwarted. But they come away from it. They step away. They step away and think, we're glad we didn't. We go back into their lives. Yeah. You know, nobody would buy that idea. No, they wouldn't. Which I'm I'm sure says a great deal about, um, uh, about life nowadays. So I've been, I've been rereading, uh, Martin Amos's experience, the autobiography from the late nineties. I think it came out and, um, well, actually, I haven't reread the whole thing. I've just reread the footnotes. The footnote, he had copious footnotes all the way through the book. And they're all absolutely fascinating. It's all full of stuff they just couldn't resist putting in there. And, you know, it's fantastic. Even, book. even though it doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with the narrative, but he just, he just wants to unload it. And I was very struck by this particular thing. It's to, obviously he talks about his father a lot, you know, father, best selling novelist and so forth. It says, literary talent is strongly inherited. Literary stamina, however, is not. The child is productive for a while, and then the filial, this is so Martin Amos, right, my thought, filial rivalrousness plays itself out. But I thought it's a really interesting point. And I wondered how much of that applied to musicians that, you know, we've seen loads of whole generations of kind of, sons and daughters of, particularly singer-songwriters, I think, you know, where they, where they clearly 
inherited the talent. You know, they, they can play and they can sing and they can probably write songs. But they may not have, have inherited the stamina, which is what you what it really takes, isn't it? Yeah. And um it always struck me as, you know, the classic case of this. David, have you ever heard the Harper Simon albums? Uh, Paul Simon, Paul Simon's. I have, album. and he's he's really promising, but he's sort of fizzled out, isn't he? Made two albums, I think, and then just stopped. And they're and they're kind of, they're quite good albums. I quite like them. Except <laughs> halfway through the second one, you find yourself thinking, God, doesn't I sound like your dad? Yeah. At which point you think I'm going to play. I'm going to play your dad instead, you know. And um, but isn't and, some of that just the initial rush to prove to your uh, successful parent that you can do it? And once you've sort of proved you can do it, then some of that pulls the rug out from under your feet. Doesn't it, it? it may be. It may be true. But you know, because who are the people who've really outshone their parents? I think there's very few. I think there's Rufus Wainwright is one. I think oh. he's big. Do you think he's bigger than? Uh, well, he's certainly got, successful. He's certainly got. His, his he's certainly got a following. Certainly yeah. got a following. Miley but, Cyrus, I think you could say. Um, Whitney Houston, Nora Jones, and Anushka Shankar, possibly. Nancy Sinatra, clearly not bigger than her father, but carved out an, a separate identity somehow. Yes, Quite interesting. A, a little niche that's done very well for us. Yeah, it really has. Um, Jacob Dylan, I think, also had, you know... We had a hit album. He had a hit album. Eliza um, Carthy, I think, obviously not bigger than the sheer breadth of her father's catalogue, but very, very successful, very individual artist in her own right. But I don't know. I've got, I've got a theory about it, though, which is that it's like people who come from acting families can often act, can't they? They go on to be actors. Pretty much all of them, yeah. it seems. Whereas people who come from musical families don't necessarily inherit that, and nor do writers. And I think a lot of that's to do... I don't know if there's anything I think it's because they're two separate things. I think acting is a skill. It's a, it's, a, it's a discipline that you learn. You're interpreting something that's already written. And that's a totally different thing from the compositional flair required to write songs you could have a very famous mother or father who's a great songwriter and you could be a brilliant musician but you may not necessarily be able to write and that's the fundamental difference i think yeah like novels you can have a very famous mother or father writer and you might be a good writer which would make you a good journalist but you may not be a good novelist where i think acting is just it's a skill could it be compared to ballet or i don't know gymnastics or something i don't know it's just it's a skill that you learn yeah. interpreting yeah. so i don't know yeah if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, it's, it's, an interesting, it's interesting to to compare and contrast. Um Somebody wrote in, was it Owen Parker, I think it was, wasn't it, about uh, David McCallum last week? Oh, yes. And uh, made the point, which actually I completely forgotten. Yeah, it was Owen Parker. Thanks for that. Which was that uh, David McCallum, we talked about in great length, in great length because he just died, actually, uh, sadly, and that his dad was one of the violin players on Day in the Life. And Day in the Life, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty, that's pretty fantastic. I, met, I was doing a thing at Henley Literary Festival, Literature Festival, this week talking about Abbey Road, and a woman uh, came up to me afterwards and, um, oh, God, what she tell Her father had been a, a late father, had been a string player, and he played on one Beatles um, tune. Oh, which one? Can you remember? Was it? It wasn't Ellen. It might have been Ellen or Rigby. I can't remember. And, uh, and uh, you know, he, yes, he wasn't sure which one he'd play on. Because <laughs> it's just a, just a job. They just go in and do it, you know, and then they, they move on to the other thing next door kind of thing. But, of course, in the fullness of time, that becomes the most famous thing that they're, that they're known for. You oh, know, yeah. Which is kind of disrespectful to them as musicians. Well, it's really. the Michael Gambon thing, isn't it? You know, Harry Potter actor dies. You know, it's that... Uh, <laughs> The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Um, more from the mailbag. I feel I ought to pass on this from Craig Tigwell. He says there's a fantastic Bon Scott era ACDC tribute band in Melbourne with a female singer called ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> hey! Very there good work. Goalie was off his line. <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't miss the oh, resistor shot. That's very oh, that's good. Brilliant. That's, that's really very nice. good. So if you haven't if you're a Patreon supporter, uh you can join us on Friday evenings for our quiz. Uh the weekend starts with our quiz at six o'clock. Uh and the quiz is basically 
10 picture clues which could lead you to the identity of a well-known LP album. used to be an act. It's now an album. And uh, people take part via Zoom. You know, if you haven't taken part and you're a Patreon supporter, please, you know, come along. Don't be shy. Nobody's humiliated or anything like that. <laughs> and uh, it, it's all very, it's all very relaxed. And uh, this week, uh, the album in question was um, uh, REM's, REM's Automatic for the People. And uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, that uh, one of the clues was the first line of of a um, of a review of the album in Rolling Stone. So the 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 opening two two sentences of the review of Automatic for the People in Rolling Stone magazine were terrible album title, terrible cover too. No, I thought that was a case. <laughs> that was a case of, of a hat, desperately trying to think of some snappy way to start something. You know, succeeded. Got my attention. But it's not a terrible album title, is it? Is it, Mark? It's it's not. It is a terrible cover, I think. Um, is it? Oh yeah, God, I, think so. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. And um, anyway, I've got the um, and then another clue was the. Um, when it went in the UK chart and at number one, what were the, the four albums behind it? And they were Peter Gabriel's So, it's a record I'd forgotten about, really, Abba Gold, Tubular Bells 2. It's amazing to think that Tubular Bells 2, so this is what, 1994, is it? Something yeah. like that. You know, that got in the chart, that was, that was number four. And finally, Timeless, the hits of Michael Bolton. There's there's a figure that nobody mourns anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the past, you know, Why haven't the, we done him in the quiz with yeah. his classic <laughs> albums? <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. There was one clue about, was it just Twister and uh, and Risk? I think it was, because the lines in uh, in uh, Man on the Moon, that wonderful list of things, Mott the Hoople and the Game of Life, Andy Kaufman in the wrestling match, Monopoly. 21, Checkers and Chess, Mr. Coke, Fred. Coca-Cola right? and ice cream. Uh, no, Nescafe and ice. Yeah. Nescafe and ice. Very strange kind of uh, stream of consciousness there. And we had a picture also of the man, a uh, younger picture, of the man who did the string arrangements for Automatic for the People, for three tracks on Automatic for the People, who was, of course, John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones. Um, Looking extremely dapper. Absolutely. And it's still a really good record, isn't it? It is. Automatic for the People. And what was the first single from Automatic for the People? I think I'm correct in saying it was Drive, which was, which was, I think it was the first one. Everybody Hurts? No. No. Maybe not. That was later on. And um, I think it was Drive, which everybody took as being a rather unusual choice for a, for an opening single. I think, according to my memory, it was the opening single. And um, it was just very slow to get started, wasn't it? Yeah. But, uh, you know, a a great record when you, when you became accustomed to it. And of course, where did the, where did the, um, where did the, um, the slogan automatic for the people come from? 
It came from a, a restaurant called Weaver D's Fine Foods, which used to advertise that outside uh, as other premises, automatic for the people. So one of those things that kind of passed into passed into history as a consequence of, uh, of his association with that particular record. And uh, that was the high point with R.E.M., wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. That record. Yeah. It never got any bigger, did it? No. That was, that was it, really. Because they started making the really loud records afterwards. Didn't yeah, they? that was never their most commercial, wasn't it? They, they started after, loved it. Afterwards, it was What's the Frequency, Kenneth, and things like that, wasn't it? It was the... After it got, started to get weird again after it. Yeah, and, yeah. Because uh, they could afford to. <laughs> I suppose Until then, so. they were really, really trying to have some kind of success. My God, they succeeded. My God, they certainly succeeded. Yeah. The Word Podcast. It passes the time. We're joined by one of our valued Patreon supporters on the occasion of his birthday, or very near his birthday, Matthew Elliott. Hello, Matthew. Hello, gentlemen. How are you all? We're We're very very good. good. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you. So it's customary on these occasions to ask the birthday boy or girl or whatever to throw a log on the conversational bonfire or pose a question or air a grievance or whatever you want to do. Over to you, Matthew. Well... I've been thinking this week about about records we own that we've never listened to. Uh, literally never listened to. Literally never listened to. The Japanese have a concept about the pile of unread books. Uh, right. I believe it's Sondoku, this pile of books that you own that you've never read and maybe never will. And it got me thinking about records I own that I am... I don't, I've got no memory. Some of them I've bought recently and I haven't listened to yet. Some of them are old records that I have in my collection that I know I've never listened to and I know how I got them. Give us some examples. Okay. I've got some here. This is probably backwards because I've got the reverse camera on, but this is ACDC's The Razor's Edge. This was bought to me, uh, for me, by some students. I'm a teacher, and this was brought to me for some students a few years ago when I left my a job and they knew I liked music, bought me an album, bought me the Razor's Edge, and they all signed it. The whole class signed it. Did they know you liked ACDC? They didn't know that I'm not bothered about ACDC. Oh, that's the point I'm going to make. So that you were given a record by a band that you you, you you had no appetite for. Of course, I had to open it and be utterly delighted. And of, course, of course, of course, of course. And all this. It's the album that's got Thunderstruck on, and I suspect that the only song I ever need to hear on this album is Thunderstruck. Right. Not bothered, for example, about listening to Mistress for Christmas. Um, I don't think I need to hear Got You By The Balls. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure... Well, I know I'm precisely sure exactly what Goodbye and Good Riddance to Bad Luck is going to sound like. I don't think I'm ever going to listen to the Razor's Edge. No, it'd be much better not to. Just imagine it. Right. What, what a change, ruin it by listening what, to it. What a changed world we live in where school children buy somebody. <laughs> An ACDC AC Unimaginable. That's one that was a gift, which is a touching gift, will remain in the collection, but right. it's never going to get listened to. Then okay. I've got albums that I've literally got no idea what they're doing here. I have no memory of buying them. Um, for example, Vangelis, <laughs> Heaven and Hell. I, do, I, I was going through the records the other day. I have no memory of buying this. I don't know how it got here. Maybe somebody gave me a pile of records, you know, which happens every so often. You're trying to impress a girl. 
<laughs> and and just leave it casually scattered around your living room. Never impress anyone. I mean, again, you know, we've all heard Van Gelis before. I suspect this is more of the same. Possibly, I just watched um blade runner or he did do blade runner didn't he um but yes. possibly i just watched blade runner and thought oh maybe i need some van gelis in my life but i've literally no memory of this record ever okay that's like that. yeah in these records i remember buying but for some reason again so the db's Oh, right, yeah. Good band. When I was going through an REM phase, I seem to remember them having some REM link. Yeah, and they are. Peter Holzapple. And, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, okay, okay. And and, and Timbuk3, greetings from oh, right. something or other. Don't use of that record. Never, right, I mean, the, the future's so bright, you've got to wear shades, cracking single, probably bought this album on the back of that. But I, I don't recall ever having listened to this album. Yeah. Uh, and it's possibly the kind of album that if I was going to do out of clear out of the record collection would go. Well, you see, but, you see, I think you should be careful about doing this because uh, my on. theory is there are certain records you're never supposed to be parted from. And I've had an experience of this going more than on one occasion where I've thought to myself, oh, God, somebody's talking about a record made about 30 years ago. I thought, do you know, I think I once had that record. I haven't listened to it this century, whatever. And I go looking, and there it is. And there it is. Okay. And then you play it, and it turns out to be really good. And that's a lovely thing. And let me tell you what's really frustrating is if, you, if you've let it go. Uh, if you yeah, let it go, yeah. and then you want it, it's like and your mother later, always you want told you, you and, know what I mean? And I'll be having a conversation with somebody say, have you ever heard the DB's repercussions? It's an album that will change your life. It is genuinely a brilliant record. Oh, is it? <laughs> Trust me, I've got, I love that record. Well, there's okay, the band, you see. That's actually happened right. on this occasion. So Mark Allen has told you, you okay. shouldn't let it go. No, it's, okay. it's simply brilliant record. You know, absolutely. And, absolutely. and then you'll, you'll only end up buying a kind of... Uh, you know, heavy version of a reissued of kind of record store day copy sure. for fifty five pounds yeah. or something sure. that you, you yeah, once no. let go for never yeah. Okay. So Mark, Mark's got something. You got? I something got one. You know, I was thinking about this this afternoon because you sent us a, 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 an email about it, and I was looking through my records and I found one. And I found an amazing thing about it. this is the record. Okay, it's called Hard Rock by the <laughs> Equinox. Now, I bought this a while ago. I can't remember how long ago. It came out in 1973. I thought I'd look up to see a bit about this group because I've never played it. I just thought it was an interesting cover, you know. Turns out, this is an amazing story, this band from Chesterfield in Derby, and they're obviously a hard rock band from 1972. They got sure. signed to Boulevard Records, who are apparently very, very shifty, paid them £25 <laughs> each, £25 each to record wow. this. That is all, £100 for the whole album. Brilliant. And when it came out... They were astonished to discover that the four people on the cover were not the members of the group. No. <laughs> not one of those people is a member of Equinox. The record company said, sorry, there was a cardboard shortage. Bollocks. And what we did was we simply repurposed a load of old sleeves that we had or a load of old pictures and just put your title on it, which I think is an absolutely amazing. I'm saying I can't imagine that has ever happened before or since. No. No. But a man came out with those. There is no girl in this group. These are four probably quite hairy rock rock uh, geezers from from Derby, and these look like um, 
Californians to me from 1967. What music did this band make that are on the cover? Yeah, I, I, that's what I'd like to know. Is, okay, is, is that, that a band? But they're so quite, who are, are you? You are assuming that that is a band. It may not be. Well, a band. It may not well, be at all. It see, might just be a photo it, shoot. Listen, this is only like uh, you know standard behaviour in like book publishing or you know whatever you know. Just put an attractive cover uh, picture on the outside of the thing, and you might sell a few. It yeah, doesn't exactly. matter if it's got any relation to the actual content. And actually. That's in the grand tradition of loads and loads of middle of the road records, where basically it was an attractive girl on the cover. Yeah, that's, sure. you, that's how you sell records. Sure. Why do you why do you think everybody bought Herb Alberts, Herb Alpert's <laughs> whipped cream and other delights? It, well, they didn't have a picture of the trumpeter on the front, did they? No, that's, that's Young lady <laughs> covered in cream, basically. <laughs> That's how it went multi-platinum. And Herb Albert went, like, fair enough. Well, it was his fair record enough. Company. It was his <laughs> record company. He, <laughs> <was> <laughs> he knew what he was doing. So. Yeah. 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 Whereas yeah he, had, he had some sense of that. Yeah. 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 Did. Oh. So, so that's my advice is don't let anything go. That's no. Okay. okay. Thank you. There's, there's a third pile. And this is albums that I know I've bought. You know, this, I've got them here. I remember buying them. But I fear listening to them because they're by people I like or have enjoyed. But for some reason, I think this album might disappoint me. That's, oh, that's a well-known syndrome. So I've got Prince, Artif- Artificial Age. I'm, he's going to dis- I know it's one of his latest. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be disappointed. Um, but the most recent one was I bought it at a festival the other week. And I, and I was utterly blown away by a band called, or an artist called KOG, who's a Ghanaian singer. He absolutely, incredible show, the highest energy, West African high life, made by, strangely, the Ghanaian lead singer and a bunch of, of white English blokes, but the white English blokes rocking up a West African storm. It was the most incredible live show I've ever seen. They came off stage, went straight to the signing tent. I was first in the queue, spent my £30 on the album, got it signed. And I've been terrified of putting it on at home ever since because I know it's going to be disappointing. It's, good. it's like the bottle of wine you buy in the south of France on holiday. And you bring home and you uncork it and you feel like crying. The cover art's beautiful. There's, you know, it's, it's, the, the stage was... That the act was amazing. This is going to only can disappoint me. It can only disappoint me. I don't know what I'm looking at it now, just feeling a little. Okay, well, my advice here, I'm going to I'm yeah. going to play Dr. Rock in this, in this particular. My 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 considered opinion is don't let it go. No, hang on to it. Going. Hang on to it. Give it 10 years, then just try okay. it. And after 10 years, your your memory of that magical night the other Good. night will have gone. Good. And you'll just you'll be... You'll have nothing to compare it with. You'll have nothing to compare it with, and you'll be perfectly fair with it. And listen, he doesn't care. He's got your 30 yeah. quid. Oh, He's well. got 30 quid, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's never going. I mean, definitely. That's that. I mean, it's nothing else. It's a beautiful album, and I and I remember the night and all of that, and that's important. But it, it's... 
Yeah, it it sits there sort of taunting me somehow. Uh, uh, you know. <laughs> Try not to let it. Try not to let it. I can't bear the idea you're having sleepless nights yeah, and things like this. You see, remember this about the records. You own them. They do not own Good, you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's Good. as simple as that. Don't let them make you unhappy. <laughs> if they, they do get rid of them yes. <laughs> that's that's the excuse to get rid of them yes. very good well, well look thanks very much for uh, for joining well, us well, thank you. For, for airing that issue which i'm sure will um will hit home with quite a number of people listening well, I'm, i reckon it will the word podcast fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub and we're joined by another birthday patron uh, Phil Turner, Phil, it's lovely to see you and uh, happy birthday. And you have some conversational proposition for us, so uh, let's see well, what you got. Yes, it sort of dates back to last year a little bit uh, when I did the, the Zoom thing. And I would recommend anyone who's toying with the idea of doing a birthday page on the sign up, it's well worth doing. Uh, but you send us a little letter saying things to look around for, which you might, you might want to look for. And um, it was sort of ticket stubs or tour t shirts. and the first concert I went to see was Elton John, and I thought he's in the news this week because yesterday apparently is the 40th anniversary of Goodbye Yellow Bit Road being released, the double album, and um, I thought we could perhaps talk about him a little bit. It's going to be more than 40 years. It's going to be 50 years, surely. It seems that way, doesn't it? But it's going to be. It's, it's early 70s, Goodbye Yellow Bit Road. <laughs> it's 50 years. Yeah, oh, it will be 50 years. Of course it's 50, 50 years. years. My, my, my bad mass, I apologise. <laughs> it's all right. And on. I should know. Given Where did you see it? You say it was the first concert you saw. When, when was that? It would be Christmas just before um, December 85, just before Christmas, at the NEC in Birmingham. We were living down in Midlands at the time. Um, and it was sort of like, it was, I don't know if you remember, going back to last year's birthday, I used to struggle with sleeping, and Elton John, my parents had his albums, and they were the, they were the sort of, a lot of the records are sort of really sort of, tagged on to as a young kid. And, of course, in the early 80s, he started having hits again. He kind of had a second wave of fame. He did. Um, he did. And, Brilliant uh, records. It's quite remarkable, really, to be sort of having hits at that age. He probably even featured in Smash Hits. And he did. Those, those records were good. The city, he, re he reunited with the classic band, didn't he? And he made two albums with them, Two Low for Zero. Two Low for Zero. Good yeah. record. Yeah, yeah and really the record after it was quite, not as good, but it was still pretty respectable. So it was around that period. I think obviously he was one of the main acts that he, he kind of closed Live Aid, didn't he? And, uh, what, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he was he, he was flying quite high. So did you uh, keep on buying his records at that well, point? Well, this is it. This is where we we had a, a break in the sort of uh, relationship. I, I, I'm still a fan. It should be said, but I'm going to say some mildly rude things about him. But he, um, yeah, I, I think in the film Rocket Man, I know that it's chronologically all over the place, but where he really came off the rails was around this time, I think around the sort of second wave of fame. And he was somewhat, shall we say, unfocused. Right. And looking back, we can see that in some of the decisions he made. He recorded some bizarre duets during this period. He, he did a duo with um, Millie Jackson, which I think was supposed to be with Tina Turner, but he, she refused to do it. He then did one with Jennifer Rush. And there's, I've still to this day, no idea what the link between that, those two artists were. And he then did this, which I got the my probably most embarrassing uh, record in my collection. I've got the twelve-inch copy of this record. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, Elton John and Cliff Richard oh, doing Lord. "Slow John Rivers." Wow, Cliff Richard, "Slow Rivers." It should be said, Cliff is very much the innocent, innocent bystander here. I, no blame attached to him, but it's just a turgid, nondescript ballad. You know, 
quite the, you know, the furthest thing you can think of as being a 12 inch single. Yeah, and I, in mitigation, I will have bought that in the bargain bin for the B side, the non album tracks. That was the only reason I bought, um, I bought singles in those days, but it was a second single off an album called Leather Jackets. Oh, yes, which oh, yes. was so bad, <laughs> yes, that I refused. I basically didn't buy a single record by Elton John for the next 20 years. 20 years. You see, that, that's quite good. It's like to give you a 20-year holiday. You know what I mean? Pretty much. I, I, I would hear on the... You'd hear Think of the money the that saved you. <laughs> you'd, hear, you'd hear the odd song on the radio. You'd think, well, he's clearly, you know, there's a partial return to form here. You know, you'd be, there'd be some half-decent stuff in the interim period, but now I stubbornly refuse to do it. Um, and it was... But, I, it's. Don't get me wrong, loads of acts will have, we'll all have bought records by acts which are sort of, they bring out a poor album, but you take it up with a smoothie. It wasn't so much that. It was the fact it was just, it was the recording equivalent of, oh, well, this will do. Yeah. <laughs> it was such That's an brilliant. insult to the record buyer. That's and a real course, testament, isn't it? The record that put you off buying Wilton John yeah. for, and of course, for 20 he, years, it was so he's, bad. He's a big star, and obviously he ran the record company, so there was no one there to say, no, we yeah, can't. Nobody was going to yeah, say, exactly. no, no, absolutely. You know, um, and he, he brought out uh, the, the sequel to Captain Fantastic in the, the sort of middle of the 2000s, which is my favourite Elton John album. And it's okay, and I've since gone back and bought a few of the better ones, which were released in the interim, and like, I wouldn't listen to them much, but he's like, uh, the sporadic moments of like, brilliance still there, and I still think he's a, you know, he's a major, major talent. That, that run of albums he did, in the first half of the 70s, stands up to close inspections against any top act. Um, and I, don't I saw him in 1971 at Guildford Civic Hall, trying to do handstands on the keyboard. He was brilliant, <laughs> in a little fringe jacket and big boots. Yeah, no, he was, he's a great actor. And I, I just think it's funny, because obviously Glastonbury happened this year, and it, it, was, this, it was viewed this great trial. But I, I still think there's a slight sort of... He's viewed slightly differently here as opposed to elsewhere, because I think like sort of... Clearly, he's a bit of a national treasure now, but I'm still not sure he necessarily get the respect he deserves. And I, well, he's, he's a, he has no mystique whatsoever, no, Elton John. I, I, you know, and particularly to the to the English, because the the English just think it's Reg Dwight from Pinner. Yeah, it's grown up with him. We can never look upon him as if he was uh, Leonard Cohen. Or no, well, I think I think there's a lot of that, but I also think in the states, it, it's kind of how. He got big because he got big in this country because it was like sort of his two first big records were Your Song and Rocket yeah. Map. And yeah. there was like 18 months between them. Uh, whereas in the States, he was an albums act to begin with. So yeah. between those two records, he released about four or five albums. And they were he all made it in the States America. by being a showman, didn't he? Yeah, but he's always always had the showman as well. But, but we I, want people who are slightly enigmatic. I just think he, he, he sort of like, he got good music press in the States, whereas it was a bit more hard earned over here. So it as a result, it's very different. Yeah. As a result, like my favorite record is Captain Fantastic. And I still think that's viewed as his best in the States. Whereas in this country, most people would say got good be able to road just because it had the most hits on it. Well, I'm just going to say one thing about Captain Fantastic. I went to see him at Wembley Stadium in whatever year that came out, 74, 75, 75. And he played the whole thing, the whole thing, and nobody knew any of the songs. He played them all in order. Here's my record about how I nearly committed suicide. <laughs> well, that's it. You know what I mean? 
in front of ways of open space you get 8,000 people sitting on the uh, you know on the, the only turf. single off that the only single off, off that album was a five and a half minute song about trying to commit suicide which yeah. is a really good record that's a brilliant record it's his probably I would be prepared to say it's his best record someone well, saved my life tonight it's a fantastic song that's what I keep trying to say to you don't be put off by that live show because the whole album's like that yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> side one is it's, 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 it's probably his only album which works as a piece yeah like side one and side two are all meant to go together but um, no yeah a suicide song and of course it was not only just that <laughs> it was like it was after the Beach Boys had had they they've been on just before him, haven't they? Doing all the hits and absolutely blown. They had like the Queen at Live moment for the absolutely. Reason. And now a bloke on the piano singing yeah. a load of songs about suicide. Yeah. It's not really what you feel like. Anyway, look, lovely to talk to you, Phil. And uh, you know, it's always good to talk about Elton. And I'm sure you've stirred up a lot of memories amongst uh, amongst the listening faithful. And we'll all be, all be going home to listen to Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. And has anyone else just, like, had a complete backlash against an artist they love like that? Right, yes. Has anybody walked out in the huff and say, all right, I'm going to leave you for 20 years? Yes. 20 years. I'm not yeah. coming. I'm taking my bat home. I'm, like, going, I'm, not, home to, I'm going home to mother and I'm taking the kids. Yeah. You didn't break my heart. You just took me for granted, which is much <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm so glad there's a happy ending. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 